Welcome to Failing Forward. Today, Holly Radice is going to tell you nine things you're probably doing wrong with cash. But don't worry, her key message is don't be afraid of cash. Welcome to Failing Forward, Holly. Thank you so much for being willing to talk today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can you introduce yourself for the audience? Yes, uh, my name is Holly Radice, and I am the Cash and Markets Technical Advisor at CARE, and I advise at a global level. Why is it important for us to be talking about failure? In the area that I work in, being humble and curious are really important. If we don't talk about failure, we're bound to repeat it. And this is really important in humanitarian assistance because of the turnover we have. We lose a lot of historical knowledge and a lot of good experience because people are not actually talking about failures. They're only talking about successes. Where I specifically advise on cash and voucher assistance, it's something that's common now in humanitarian and development work. And in my experience, for a lot of practitioners, they're new to it. And if they're new to these modalities, they're scared and they're afraid that they're going to mess it up. And so messing up is part of the process, really. They're afraid it's going to take take too long, that it's complicated, they just don't want to do it. But doing cash and voucher assistance, really, it's evolved quickly over the past 10 years, and that evolution is based on um, successes, and perhaps even more so by failures, is what I've seen. You have mentioned that you are working in cash and vouchers, and that's kind of what we're talking about today. For people who are less familiar with it, can you just give us a quick intro to what that looks like? Absolutely. So cash and voucher assistance is any type of support that is given either through physical cash or through a voucher. Vouchers would be something that is restricted. I always give the example, it's about like, so whoever we work for, I happen to work for CARE, CARE pays me in cash, or CARE could also pay me in Target gift cards. And I would be able to get some of the things for, that I need for my household, but not perhaps all of them. And so cash and voucher assistance are different types of modalities. They're not sectors, and they can be used for any type of outcome for humanitarian or development assistance. Tell us a little bit about the failures you're going to talk about today. So I wanted to talk a little bit, take a composite look at failures from some of the experiences that I've seen throughout the care world and also in my experience in cash and voucher assistance broadly. And I sort of have my top things that happen which can contribute towards failure in cash and voucher assistance. So the first one is specifically towards care, and there's the idea that care doesn't do cash and voucher assistance, and this is simply not true. As an organization, we found over the past three years that about 30 of our countries of presence, we are doing cash and voucher assistance, and that really depends on the context. Mostly we're doing it in a humanitarian context, but often doing it in development and recovery. The second point is anyone can design a response with cash and voucher assistance, or on the other side, I can't design a response because I'm not a specialist. And these two opposite sentiments come up frequently. While designing an intervention using cash and voucher assistance does require a slightly different skill set than those that might be using uh, in-kind, such as food assistance, with some guidance and the right tools, it's possible for a non-specialist to design an intervention. On the other side, by not using standard and appropriate processes, this can lead to poor design and really can put the intended recipients and care staff and partners in harm's way. Another point that I see sometimes is that cash is riskier than other assistance modalities. And this is a widely heard rumor that I still hear, and it's simply not true based on all the evidence. Cash is not more risky, but it is important to note that cash does bring different types of risks. Tell us a little bit about some of those risks, some of the things that we see that can happen with cash. Cash is more attractive than a bucket or a sack of grain. So people can feel more vulnerable to different types of diversion that could happen. Actually, a lot of the risks for cash are more perceived than anything else. Mm -hmm. One good thing about cash is that you can hide it really quickly. People don't have to know that you've actually received it. 
but there's there's just a general sense that people think that cash is going to put people in more in harm's way. It is possible that moving from the point of reception to the point of where the person lives, depending on the context, I mean, they could be different elements, which would be the same if they were getting another type of assistance. What makes some of the risks different? One of the risks we often don't hear from the perspective of the recipient is related to data management, data protection. So we're moving towards using digital transfers. When we are doing that, we have a lot of information which is being used by a third party, a financial service provider. And some of that information is personal identifying information. And there are places where some of those third parties may or may not have the best intentions with a crisis affected population. So that's a really big risk that we see. So we have to make sure that our processes are set up in the best way to protect our populations. Some of the other risks are potentially related to coercion from different elements in their communities who might want to get their hands on cash. Again, more interesting than the bucket. Some of the challenges you've mentioned so far is the perception that CARE doesn't do cash at all. Mm -hmm. We think either anybody can design a cash program or nobody can, Mm -hmm. and that we're really risk averse. We think there are a lot of risks happening that maybe aren't, and we're maybe not preparing for the right kinds of risks. Exactly. What else? Well, another one is that markets can't respond. So there's a big cyclone that comes through. We experienced this in Cyclone Idai in Southern Africa. And we think, no, we just have to give people stuff. But actually, everywhere that care works, there are markets. There are goods, services, and labor markets. Even when there is a crisis that hits, it takes a little bit of time for them to stabilize. We are able to find ways where a market may have had broken links to be able to reconnect those links because we're using market-based approaches of which cash and voucher assistance is part of that. The trick is to do it in the proper place in the value chain. So you have to be able to see where is the broken link and say, is it really with the consumers? Is it with the suppliers? Is it with the people that are doing the transport for any of the above? Another one comes from a perspective of letting go, letting the crisis-affected populations be able to make decisions. And so we think that we need to tell recipients how to spend their cash transfer, that they're going to spend it on the wrong things or they're going to spend it on the intended outcome. But the beauty of cash transfers is that we give agency to the recipient. And what we find in all of the evidence and all the data that, that CARE and other organizations collect is that people are not only able to make their own decisions for their basic needs, but they actually do change choose the items that make the most sense for their household. So there is no incorrect thing. A lot of the data I've seen is that what people spend on is things like food, education, healthcare, and sometimes repaying debts that they had already accumulated before assistance arrived. Isn't that exactly what we want them to be doing? Exactly. And the last point you bring up is a really important one because it also gives people a longer-term coping mechanism where incurring debt is one of the first lines of defense. So when you are able to pay that back, then you are able to then reinvest and get the confidence of your local merchants as well. So it's a really important one. This is one that is a little controversial in my world, but it's that cash in hand is bad. So that means where people actually are physically getting cash as opposed to getting it through a mobile phone or getting it through a visa card. There's a really big push for us to go digital. But I have to say the Luddite in me says that in many places that we work, the reality is there's no electricity, there's no bank, there's no mobile phone service, and cash in hand through a local service provider is the best way to deliver cash. And we often find that there can be microcredit institutions, local cooperatives, or even in some places, security companies who are able to go to the last mile and bring cash to people where they need it. I'd say one of the biggest ones for places where cash and voucher assistance is new is that we underestimate the time that it takes to set up a project. 
I'm sure that this is not specific to cash and voucher assistance, but because there's a slightly different way that we have to work, we need time to set up contracts. Because cash is more attractive, targeting becomes a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, sensitization can take longer. It's a different type of tool we need to look at. And then working with service providers because they are a third party who needs to be able to understand how we are working in communities and especially making sure we're safeguarding them. And this really can take time and it's really often underestimated. Can you give us an example of what that has looked like? I can say there was an example when I first came into my position, which is about a year and a half ago, where we had a sudden influx of displaced populations, where all of the other organizations were doing cash transfers. And we actually had a financial service provider lined up, but we got so caught up in trying to have our market assessment and setting up the tools and figuring out if people were going to spend their money on the wrong or the right thing, that by the time people had been displaced for really an extended period of time with nothing. It was a learning process for the team. The good thing is, is they now have the tools that they need to be able to to make this analysis. And we've been investing heavily in capacity building. When you think about that, startup delays is something that's very common in programming at CARE. We see that often. How do we think about both the added urgency in a humanitarian situation, but then also because what you're starting up looks a little bit different than a development program would. And if, you know, if you're trying to get a contract with a financial service provider, we're not always used to that. What are some of the tools and resources available to help people get through that? We really need to work this into our preparedness. And I would say the three top things in preparedness that I, that, that, any of the countries where we're working. We need to, to be thinking of this in advance, having a financial service provider contract already, and maybe more than one, because they might not have the same reach in everywhere in the country, but at least where we know that we have presence in a particular country, we should have a standing financial service provider contract. And we should know our market, right? So there are tools, there's uh, tools that are called the pre-crisis market assessment, which people can look at so that they understand where goods and services are coming from. They can also do capacity building of their teams to make sure that not only the program people, but logistics, finance, and particularly senior management know where they need to have their distinct roles in their work. And with that, we need to have standard operating procedures. And these are really important for us to be able to have that separation of duties and make sure that we are safeguarding as much as possible, both our staff and also the recipients. This is one that I often see uh, because I look at a lot of proposals and concept notes. There's no budget for cash and voucher assistance, even though we want to do it. Usually the transfer value is actually there, but there's a few things that are slightly different than when we're using other assistance modalities. And that is we need to budget for the delivery mechanism. If we want to have a financial service provider go out to the most inner part of the country to help our people uh, to get cash in their hands, we have to pay for that. And so we, when we're negotiating these financial service provider contracts, we need to make sure that we reflect that in our budgets. Mm-hmm. And the other really good practice, which we often don't see, and it becomes a risk for us, is not adding in an extra percentage of the transfer value. What we see in many contexts is that there's inflation. And so what is may consist as the food basket for a transfer value, uh, it will change. And then we either have to give people less or we have to give to less people. What we try to do is to say, have a 5 to 10% increase in your transfer value budget to be able to do that. The good thing is that if you don't have any type of inflation, you can always reach more people.
last thing for the monitoring. I know something that's dear to your heart, Emily. Absolutely. <laughs> because cash and voucher assistance is heavily monitored and it's a different type of monitoring. Sometimes we need to either have different types of tools or we have to have different types of processes to be able to, to have really what the most rigorous monitoring that we want to have. And so those are things that I often see don't come up in proposal development. I would say the last one is, and this one is very near and dear to our hearts, is that um, women receiving the transfer is too risky or it equals empowerment. So there are two dichotomous ideas that we often find that women, either they don't know how to handle money in their family, it's going to cause disharmony, or that by giving women money, that that is exactly what's going to then be able to unleash her capacity to be able to buy what she wants, where she wants, go and speak as she wants in her community. But we know that we need to be able to take other types of steps to really meet the potential of, of empowerment. Tell us a little more about gender and cash and how those things fit together, and particularly pitfalls that you often see. What you've described is a very high-level set of assumptions that are wrong. But do you see other things we're often doing wrong about women and cash? I'd say another really important thing is not engaging men. When the community has decided that women should be the intended recipient of the transfer, but not engaging with men along the way. Another thing that I see in many places we work, there are systemic issues where women either have lower levels of literacy, lower levels of numeracy. They may not read and write in the language that is used in a mobile phone or that is used in a bank, that they need to rely on someone else in their family or in their household. And what we're looking for is, you know, through a cash transfer is as much agency as possible so that people don't have to rely on someone else. And I think it's really important to point out that within the subgroups within gender, so older women, older men, we also see a real concentration of issues being able to access, understand, and with ease be able to use the instruments that we have for their for their transfers. When we talk about risks one of the risks, it's not specific to cash, it's really distribution more broadly, is around you target one member of the family and then there might be backlash or repercussions there. Do we see that happening at all in cash transfers and specifically when we're focusing on women? And if so, what do we do about it? One of the things that is really a challenge, of course, not specific to cash, but when we are asking people about issues related to either intimate partner violence or gender-based violence, we don't want to engage in these conversations with people if we don't know how to refer them, we don't know how to react in those situations. We tend to ask questions in monitoring, which are a little bit more general. There are some very interesting tools that help us to look at the potential of gender-based violence as attributed to a transfer. What we are now championing is looking at mitigation uh, for GBV risks. Mm-hmm. We recently put out a compendium to the ISGBV guidelines. It is targeted towards sectoral specialists, excluding GBV specialists and cash specialists, and then GBV specialists on another side to be able to learn how to mitigate for GBV risks and then also how to use cash and voucher assistance in case management. So there are steps along the life cycle of a program that would have cash and voucher assistance to make sure that we are trying to mitigate those risks Talk to us a little bit about that life cycle question, because often in any context, but especially in an emergency situation where the situation is evolving pretty fast, some of what seems like a really good idea on day one turns out to not work at all two months in. Mm -hmm. How do you think about adapting to that and changing to something that was a success at the beginning, but now is a failure? Or Usually we get the modality right. If a voucher is going to work here, it's going to work here. Cash is going to work here, it's going to work. But it's really more the approach that we go into the community. So I have seen in one of our programs where we really, our targeting was just severely not understood. And in fact, we stopped this voucher programming at that time because what we needed people to have buy-in, totally retarget what was going on. And it took time. 
and we needed to be able to justify that. But in the end, the community was really happy that it was done because mm-hmm. they felt a certain sense of ownership that we as an organization were saying, okay, we're listening to you. And that really came from the field teams, and I had a lot of respect for them to have the humility to say, okay, we're going to redo this. One of the things you mentioned earlier on is that we can sometimes get stuck in this. We want the perfect market analysis. We want the perfect targeting tool. I heard somebody say once, care learns by planning. Then you often leave people hanging for a long time while we're getting our house in order. Mm-hmm. How do you think about jumpstarting that process or getting us to be able to act more quickly with less perfect information? Well, I'm actually in the rapid gender assessment course right now. I love the spirit behind that where it's, you know, we need to get things done and we need to make things practical. And I think the same is for market assessments. There's actually very good tools out there, rapid market assessments, which you don't have to be a specialist to be able to do. You literally just have to be able to read and you have to be able to go to a market and get some information. And I think that people have to have more faith in their in their capacity to do that and looking more broadly within our teams. So myself as a program person, maybe I don't know anything about supply chain, but I am sure there is somebody on my team who can do that. And so the idea is to bring in the person from procurement to help me do the market assessment, to help me maybe have human resources involved as well, because they need to know who the people are that have to be hired for this type of work. So I think that we have to get better at drawing on some of the capacities. And the most successful programs that I have seen uh, for cash have had the buy-in from non-program people from the beginning because they could see their place in the entire life cycle, right? So that if I, as finance manager, do not push through this really important voucher, then 500,000 people aren't going to get their cash transfer. What's an action you would recommend to other people based on what you've talked about today? I would love to see, and I will give a big shout out to the Somalia uh, country team who did this. They did a specific after action review just for their cash element. Different members within the team were able to see what was my role in this cash transfer program. And they really took ownership for that and they, they changed how they worked as a result. And I was really inspired by it. So big kudos to them. And I think it's a great practice that we can spread out through the care world. Yeah. And what are some of the changes they made as a result of that after action review? They tried to look at how do they move along in procedures? How do they involve people? At what points do they involve them? Any final thoughts or comments you want people to hear? to not be afraid of cash, to please bring us into the conversation and see what the possibility is, because really what cash and voucher assistance does is allows us to meet the intended objectives of communities through different ways. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Failing Forward. Stay tuned for our next episode.